uh, June 26, 1990, I left Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, so I could go to Fort Benning, Georgia to go through the United States Army basic training. When I boarded the plane in Oklahoma City, I, threw, I thought I knew what it meant to be a soldier. I mean, I had seen all the war movies that were out and were current. I had advice from my Uncle Dean. His advice to me was, son, when you cry, do it way late, way late into the night. Bury your head deep into the pillow so that nobody hear you crying in the night. Uh, my, I had advice from my dad who said, keep your mouth shut. Don't volunteer for nothing. And I mean nothing. And I mean keep your mouth shut. Now, I never did get to keep your mouth shut thing down, but I did learn not to volunteer for things. Uh, armed with the knowledge gleaned from the movies and the advice I had from my family, I headed out fully expecting I knew what it took to be a good Soldier. When I arrived there, I, I had in my mind this kind of image of how things would go. Uh, I would be, in my mind, because of what I had known and all I had ever wanted to do was be a soldier in my life, that, that I, I would probably be one of the greatest soldiers the drill sergeants had ever seen. They would say that, they would acknowledge that, and they would recognize it. I, I knew what it took, and I was prepared. So uh, at midnight on June 27th in 1990, I arrived at Fort Benning, Georgia. And by 12.01, I realized there was a great gulf fixed between what I thought was reality and what was reality. Uh, I realized, I was, came to realize I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to walk. I didn't know how to talk. I didn't know how to dress myself, make my bed, roll my shirt sleeves, or, or really do anything. And then a few weeks after I arrived at Fort Benning, a drill sergeant named Sergeant Thomas, Drill Sergeant Thomas, he summed up all my problems by telling me I was a soup sandwich. Now, I don't know what a soup sandwich is, and I never did figure it out, though he called me that many times. I just know it's bad. Now, when I arrived at Fort Benning, Georgia, and, and throughout all of my time in the Army, I wanted one thing most of all. I wanted desperately to be a good infantry soldier. That was... All I had wanted all of my life was to be an infantry soldier. And more than anything, that was what I wanted in life. Now, it's been over 30 years since I arrived at Fort Benning, Georgia in 1990. And despite the passing of time, I still have the same desire to be a good soldier. Only now the, the soldier or the, the military I serve in is different. My desire isn't so much to be a good soldier for the United States Army as it is to be a good soldier for Jesus Christ. And as the Apostle Paul faced the end of his life, he wrote a letter to his young protege named Timothy and he gave him some advice and some counsel on how to go about being a good soldier. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 3 and 4. Should be page 914 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Second Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him, to be a soldier. Title of the message tonight is A Good Soldier for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, we need you tonight to open our hearts to your word. We need you tonight to strengthen and establish us in this word and enable us, God, to go and do whatever it is you'd want us to do 
in this life. Father, you have taught us in your word we are to be good soldiers for Jesus. We are to live as though we're soldiers. We're to to do life in a certain way. And as we look at this passage and what the Apostle Paul wrote, let us take it to heart. Let your spirit bring it to life in our lives and make it living and active. Challenge us and strengthen us and encourage us. And make us better able as we go out of this place to be good soldiers for Jesus everywhere we go and in all we do. Fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to say your words and your ways for your glory. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. But you may be seated. Now one, one common metaphor for a disciple of Jesus in the New Testament is a soldier. Which is interesting, considering our world, our current world, would not like that sort of a metaphor. Right? Our, our current world has this mindset of a Christian, that, that they are weak and they are timid and they are sort of poor and pitiful and powerless. And yet, the Gospels, or not the Gospels, but the, the writings of the New Testament often use soldier-like language. We're to be good soldiers for Christ. We're to wage a good warfare. We're to fight spiritual battles. And on and on it goes. But the picture here, and in every time it's used to talk about a, a soldier as a disciple of Jesus, it's not the peacetime soldier. Right? It's not the soldier that, that spends his time polishing his brass buttons and spit-shining his boots so that he can stand in a parade and look pretty for other people. And they can say, my, my, my. How sharp those soldiers are. No, the, the image is always that of a wartime soldier. It is of a soldier who is fighting an enemy, a very real enemy, who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. Either in, in the soldier's life or in the life of those around him. This enemy is trying. And if he cannot steal, kill, and destroy in the life of the soldier, then he will discourage the soldier from following Jesus and engaging a spiritually darkened culture with the light of the gospel of Jesus. So you and I, we are soldiers in Christ's army. Which again may be a unique image that we don't often think about in our day. But it is what we see often in Scripture. If you are a disciple of Jesus tonight, the question is not, are you a soldier in the army of Christ? The question is, are you a good soldier in the army of Christ? Paul encourages Timothy to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And as we look at what he says, a good soldier is and what a good soldier does, the one way I would sum it up is to be good soldiers for Jesus. We must be fully devoted disciples of Jesus. Now, it's easy enough to say we are fully devoted disciples of Jesus, but it is something entirely different to live this reality out. And this passage gives us three tests. Of which reveal if we are fully devoted followers of Christ. Number one, 
be willing to endure hardship. Right? So thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, hardness there doesn't mean just be tough. It means hardship, tribulation, hard trials and problems in your life. So to be a good soldier requires us to endure hardship. Now, this doesn't mean we seek hardship. It doesn't mean we like hardship. But it does mean we don't shrink back from hardship when our service and devotion to Jesus brings it into our lives. We don't let up in our service and devotion to Jesus when the service and devotion to Jesus is leading hardship into our lives. We don't run and hide from hardship when it's coming because of our service and our devotion to Jesus. Right? Nowhere in the Bible are disciples of Jesus promised an easy life. And anyone who says that it is, is clearly misunderstanding a huge portion of Scripture. Because Scripture not only doesn't promise an easy life, Scripture promises exactly the opposite. Why would Paul tell us we have to endure hardship as a good soldier if hardship wasn't part of life? But even beyond Paul, the words of Jesus Christ himself. These things have I spoken unto you that you that in me you might have peace in the world. Ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, I like this passage because of the contrast. I've said some things to you so you'll have peace. And you can be cheerful and joyful because I've overcome. But right in the middle of the peace and the cheerfulness is the reality of tribulation. Jesus didn't say we, we might have tribulation. He didn't say things could be difficult. He promised they would be as long as we live in this world. We will have tribulations. Now, that's just one passage. We could look at passage after passage after passage, which would teach us similar things. Paul saying all those who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution over and over. It goes scripture is brutally honest about the reality of hardship for the follower of Christ. Why? Why is Scripture so clear about this? Why does the New Testament talk of this so often? Why did Jesus speak of it so much? It's because Jesus and then the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture understood that in order to be a good soldier for Jesus, you must know hardships are coming. And you must know that so you can be willing and able to endure them. Some of the hardest things that would ever happen in life are the things that catch us off guard. The things which are not expected. So imagine, if you will, you're promised an easy life. And life is hard. How does that affect you in your life? Again, since we're talking about being a soldier... I remember when I went to basic training, I, I, had, I had an idea of what awaited me there. 
I knew the drill sergeants weren't going to be cheerleaders and friendly and touchy-feely and we weren't going to hug and sing Kumbaya. I, I knew they were going to yell and scream and cuss and call me names and make me do push-ups and all kinds of other painful exercises far beyond anything I'd ever done in my life. Now, I didn't know everything, but I had in my mind an idea this was going to be hard. This was going to be difficult. And so when we, we get off the what they call the cattle trucks and the drill sergeants start bellering and screaming and cussing at you and telling you to do push-ups and get up and run over here and get down again, it was stressful, but I knew it was coming. I, I was there. I knew what was happening. But there were some guys, and they didn't know that. I don't know what they expected. I mean, I don't know what they thought they were joining. But when the drill sergeants, we had one guy with the drill sergeants, we got off the counter, the drill sergeant started screaming. He literally just dropped his bag and started crying. Some of the guys were not prepared to have to do physical exercise. And so they were, I mean, they were overwhelmed at, at the, the hardship of basic training. And do you know what happened to those who weren't prepared? By and large, they quit. Or they went AWOL. It wasn't uncommon to to wake up in the morning and see an empty bed that was filled in the night. The guy got up when nobody was looking, snuck out and ran away. Or to have people just say, I quit. I don't want to be a soldier anymore. I changed my mind. That happened by and large because they were not prepared for the reality of enduring hardship to be a soldier. Something similar can happen as disciples of Jesus, if we aren't prepared to endure suffering. Again, if we are promised that if we come to Jesus, He's going to make our lives better and easier, and there's not going to be any problems or trials or hardships, when they come, not if they come, when they come, what does that do to our faith? What does that do to our belief system? How does that enable us to continue? It's crushing Soul-crushing, almost faith-destroying at times. If we're going to be a good soldier for Jesus, we must be willing to be just as faithful to Jesus in the hard times as we are in the easy times. We must be ready to follow Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death faithfully and be just as faithful, be also faithful in the the peaceful meadows and the peaceful streams. Now, while the idea of enduring hardship is a very general principle for all of life as a disciple of Jesus, there is a specific way we're to endure hardship. Look at verse 8, 9 and 10, particularly verse 10. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. So Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? He is not suffering for killing somebody or stealing from the market or, or doing some sort of crime. He's in jail because he's preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he says the word of God is not bound. So therefore, I endure all things for the sake of of the elect, for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. 
Paul was willing to endure any amount of suffering so the lost could be saved. Paul was willing to endure any hardship if it meant the lost would be saved. What are we willing to endure so the lost can be saved? Our generation of American disciples seem fairly unwilling to endure much of anything so the lost can be saved. Those who have gone before us, like the Apostle Paul, or Adahiram Judson, or David Livingston, or Hudson Taylor, or Jim Elliott, and, and countless others, have a vastly different take, and lived vastly different lives, and suffered unbearable, unbelievable hardships in faraway places, away from their families, for one reason, for the elect's sake, that they might obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, I, I know they were rare. Not everybody in those days was one like them. And there are some like them today doing the same sorts of things. But but we, me, we sure seem soft in comparison. Are we willing to endure hardship so the lost can be saved? But hardship doesn't necessarily have to refer to physical suffering. I mean, sure, that's a part of it. But that's not the only thing that would be a hardship in the world, is it? It would be any sort of hardship flowing out of our service and devotion to Jesus. Are we willing to endure the hardship of uncomfortable conversation with someone we know and love so the lost can be saved? Are we willing to endure the hardship of a lost relationship so we can share the gospel and the lost can be saved? Are we willing to endure the hardship... Of people talking bad about us behind our backs because we've shared the gospel so the lost can be saved. If we're to be good soldiers for Jesus, we must be willing to endure hardship. This is a part of what it means to be a fully devoted disciple of Jesus. Secondly, we be willing to endure hardship. Second. Avoid unnecessary entanglements. Look at verse 4. And no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him as a soldier. We're just going to focus on no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life right here. Now from the very first time I read this passage, the idea of being entangled by the affairs of this life was challenging to me. I mean, that's a, a huge statement, right? If you're a soldier for Jesus, you don't entangle yourself with the affairs of this life. Well, now, what does it mean to be entangled with the affairs of this life? Think about being tangled up in something. Have you ever got so tangled up in something, you just couldn't move? Now, one time when I was in... Germany, stationed in Berlin, we went to a place called Wielflicken to do some training. It's a very mountainous area of Germany. And so 
we were doing some night maneuvers and we were walking down a pretty steep grade. And it was very thick woods. So there was lots of trees and lots of bushes and what we would call wait-a-minute vines, just these vines that grabbed on and you kind of had to drag yourself through. And we had this little guy in our unit named Paul Altimore. And Paul Altimore was the assistant machine gunner, so he had a bunch of ammo and he had a tripod for the M60 machine gun. And where our packs would weigh 50 or 60 pounds, his would weigh 75 to 100 pounds. So you're walking down this steep hill with these wait-a-minute vines with all this pack on you and Altimore stumbles. And he goes headfirst into the ground, but he doesn't lawn dart. He rolls. And he rolls and he rolls until finally he comes to a stop. But he didn't come to a stop because he hit a bottom part. He came to a stop because... His legs and his arms and his helmet and his pack and his chest plate. And every part of him was wrapped up in those vines. And Altimore was struggling to get up. And he was trying to move. And he was looked like a, a turtle paralyzed on its back, struggling to get up. It was, it was hilarious. But he did not find it funny, but the rest of us truly enjoyed the show he put on. But he was working as hard as he could to get up, but he was making zero progress. He was so entangled that he couldn't get up and he couldn't move on. From a soldierly perspective, at that moment, Altimore was so entangled with those vines, he was missionally ineffective. And the mission had to stop. And we had to get out our bayonets and we had to take the time to cut him free. That kind of entanglement, I think, is what Paul imagines in this passage. But he's not calling on us to quit our jobs and come to the church. And we just sit at church 24 hours a day praying and reading our Bibles. Until Jesus comes back. In fact, I would almost say Paul is calling on us to do something very different than that. Almost the opposite. Paul is sending us into the thick of it all. But he's warning us not to get so entangled with with all the stuff that goes on in this life that we are missionally ineffective. We cannot do the mission Jesus has given us. Because Jesus has given us as disciples a mission, hasn't he? We are to seek and to save those who are lost. We are to make disciples of all nations. Disciples make disciples. That's that's the mission. And what he's saying is, as you go through your life, stay on this mission. Don't get so caught up with all of the other affairs of this world. That you're so entangled by them, you are missionally ineffective and you can't move forward and do that. Think about how easy it is to get entangled with the affairs of this life. And end up neglecting our service and our devotion to Jesus. And I'm talking about being entangled so we don't have time to, to read our Bible and pray, much less be active in making disciples of all nations. 
That's what it means to be entangled by the affairs of this life. It means to be so caught up in, in busyness, the busyness of this life, we can't do Jesus-y things. We can't be on mission with Jesus and for Jesus. Statistically, the American church is in a steep decline. While the population in America rises, the number of evangelical Christians and attendance in church and all of those things drop rapidly. Right now, I can't remember the numbers, so I'm not going to try to make them up, but evangelical Christians in America make up a tiny minority of Americans. And it's going to get even less as time goes on because the population continues to go up. Churches continue to decline and close and people walk away from the faith and new converts aren't being made. And in my opinion, one of the greatest reasons for this is the American church is entangled in busyness. And this entanglement hinders us in our service, and our devotion to Jesus. Many are so entangled they can't even come to church on a semi-regular basis, much less be active in seeking to make disciples of all nations. They're so entangled they, they can't read their Bible and pray on a regular basis, so there's very little for God to work with in them to reach others through them. We are so entangled by busyness. We have become missionally ineffective. This is what we do. There's a, an email somebody sent me years ago. And I, I, I didn't think of it until just now. I should have printed it out and brought it long though so I couldn't read it all. But what it does is it talks about like the ills of society. And I said, what did, what did you do as a Christian? And I said, well, me... I went to church and the preacher preached and I went home. That's what Christians do now. And it went on and on through this happened and that happened. What did you do? Me? I went to church and the preacher preached and I went home. That's what Christians do now. And I think that's by and large what we see. The church is missionally ineffective because we see coming to church and the preacher preaching. That is our, our service and our devotion to Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong, that's part of it for sure. But there's a whole world of people out there that aren't coming in here ever. And it's our job to do what we can to reach them. And we can't just come and say, I hope they, they show up because they're not going to. We have to go. But that takes time. It takes effort. And it's not that we don't love Jesus and it's not that we don't want to see people saved. We're just too busy to put forth that kind of time. We're entangled. Now, I'll add, I don't think entanglement is necessarily sin. It doesn't have to be. Sure, it can be. Sin is an entanglement, but it isn't the only entanglement. I would go so far as to say, by and large, for the average person who is a genuine believer in Jesus, what entangles them is not sin. It will be good things, fine things we allow to dominate our lives. 
until we are so fully entangled by them, we are missionally ineffective. We can't make disciples. We can't do anything Jesus would have us to do because we're so busy with all of these other things. To be a good soldier of Jesus, we must be a fully devoted disciple of Jesus. And this means we must avoid unnecessary entanglements. And then finally, focus on pleasing Jesus. No man that warth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. When we're entangled, Jesus is not pleased with our lives. You think about that. That's that's a big statement, and, and, and that's the goal, right? I mean, we we want Jesus to be pleased with our lives. We want to hear, "Well done, thou good and faithful servant." Enter to the joy of thy Lord. We want when when Satan presents himself to God in heaven. We want God to say, have you considered my servant? Like he did to Job. We want to live lives that please Jesus. But we can't. If we're entangled by the affairs of this life. So we are missionally ineffective. Now think about that. That's a big thing. We can be productive members of society. We can be good, moral people. We can regularly or semi-regularly attend church. We can live a a mostly non-sinful life and still not be pleasing with Jesus because we are so entangled by the affairs of this life. We are missionally ineffective. I find that very, very convicting. If we wish to please Jesus, we have to focus on living to please Jesus. We have to focus. This is intentional. Because that's not a normal thing. We as natural people do not just think, I want Jesus to be happy with my life. That only comes once we're born again. But even when we're born again, again, that so many other things besides thinking about pleasing Jesus in our life. Two verses in particular, I think, are are important here. One, whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, do all the glory of God. So to focus on pleasing Jesus, we have to ensure whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. So think about everything you do. On the regular. Can you do that for the glory of God? Right? Now that doesn't mean, notice that doesn't mean read your Bible and pray and come to church for the glory of God. He says eat or drink or whatsoever you do. Eat or drink. He's talking about the very basic fundamental things of life. So the idea is there's really not anything non-sinful we can't do for the glory of God. So the question is we look at our lives. Can I do what I do? For the glory of God. And then, do I do what I do 
for the glory of God? Do I do it in such a way my light shines and people glorify God through us? Secondly, another verse, and whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. To focus on pleasing Jesus, everything we do should be done as a representative of Jesus Christ. So again, think about all we do. Can we do all we do as a representative of Jesus Christ? Again, the picture here isn't come to church and read your Bible as a representative of Jesus Christ. It's, it's whatever you do in word or deed, in, in word or deed, all of your life. Do it as a representative. So, when we go to the job, we're representatives of Jesus Christ. When we go to the restaurant, we're representatives of Jesus Christ. When we post on social media, we're representatives of Jesus Christ. When we talk to people, and we talk about people, we're representatives of Jesus Christ. Can we do all we do and legitimately say, I represent Jesus well in this moment? And then we have to do it knowing I am a representative of Jesus Christ. Now, again, this isn't the natural way we would go about life. But it is the way we would go about life if we want to please Him who hath chosen us to be a soldier. To be good soldiers of Jesus, we must be fully devoted disciples of Jesus. To do this, we must focus on pleasing Jesus in all of our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this message really, really hard. And it does raise a question of why. Why would I do these things? Why would I do these things that are not natural to me or not normal to me? And, and just in my natural self are not even overly pleasing to me. I mean, I, I don't like the idea of enduring hardship. Do you? I sure don't. My natural tendency is to do the opposite. If this is going to make my life difficult, I'd much rather do that instead. But if this is my service to Jesus and it's going to bring hardship, Jesus says, i, I got to do it anyway. Entanglements. But man, entanglements, again, they don't have to be big or bad things. There's just a lot of fun things to do in this whole world. There's a lot of things that you can do and just let your mind go and not think about the stress and all these other things and just do nothing. Those could be an entanglement. I want to please Jesus, but to take the point to focus on that, to think about that, to be intentional about that, that's not a natural thing. So why, why do we do these things? Because the why matters. I think the why can be summed up in two parts. The first part of the answer is Jesus. Who He is and what He's done. But Jesus was not just a teacher. And He was not just a prophet. And He was not just a miracle worker. He was and is all of those things and more. John 12. We're reminded that Isaiah's vision of God which is Isaiah 6, was Jesus in all of His glory. John, Colossians, and Hebrews all tell us 
Jesus is the one who created all things. So the great and glorious God of Isaiah 6, the creator and sustainer of all that exists, cast off a measure of his glory, came to earth as a human, lived a sinless life, did all kinds of amazing miracles, that and taught in ways that astounded everyone from the, the simple to the profoundly educated. And then after about 33 years of life, he was betrayed by one of his disciples, taken by the Romans and crucified on a cross. And yet the cross wasn't an accident. It wasn't a surprise. The cross was the whole point of the reason he came. He didn't come to give us an example to follow, not just that. He didn't come to just astound people with miracles and teachings. He came to die as a sacrifice for sin. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. His dying, that awful death, was the point of His coming. It was to pay the penalty our sins have incurred. He bore our wrath in our place. So we could be forgiven. And reconciled to God and dwelt with the Spirit, children of God, joint heirs with Christ, have an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven just for us. Jesus came for that purpose. He came to do those things. Why would I endure hardship as a good soldier for Jesus? Because of what Jesus has done for me and because of who He is. The God who died for me. So I would endure all things. I would avoid unnecessary entanglements. And yes, I would live to please such a God. Because of who He is and what He's done. The second part is because the second part is Jesus and the mission he has given us. The main mission of the church of Jesus Christ is to go and make disciples of all nations. If we aren't careful, though, we'll let that phrase make disciples deceive us. And it'll make us think it's some sort of clean, clinical classroom setting. That's where disciples are made. And when we do this, we reduce it to sterile, safe, a classroom kind of. Everybody come in, got your seat and your pen and your paper. But that's not the way the Bible describes the mission we're on. One of the greatest examples or the greatest verses talking about the mission is in the book of Jude. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. The New Living Translation translates pulling them out of the fire as snatching them from the flames of judgment. So to to imagine what Jude is talking about there, what we should imagine is unbelievers, those who have not repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ, they are hanging over the fires of hell. And there is a Spiderweb thin string holding them up, and that's all that's stopping them from falling into the just judgment of an Almighty God. 
And as we look at that, we know that thread could break at any moment. But worse yet, that thread will break at some moment. There will be a day when the God of the universe will call them into account for their life. He will snap the thread. He will drop them into judgment. How do we get them from that place to the safe place where we are? Somebody has to pull them out of the fire. Somebody has to snatch them from the flames of judgment. Who would that person be? Look in the mirror. That's who that person would be. Look around this room. That's who that person would be. You and I, we are the only hope those people have. Because we know the one, the only one, who can truly save them from the fire. And that is Jesus Christ. And if we refuse to go to them, if we don't talk to them, if we don't reach out to them, then the day will come where that web will snap and they will fall into judgment. And there they'll stay for all of eternity. God will absolutely save all who believe. That is a tremendous, beautiful promise of Scripture. However, how can they believe on whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? And we all know people. And God will absolutely save them if they call on Jesus. But they won't call on Jesus if they don't believe in Jesus. And they won't believe in Jesus unless someone tells them. And the reality is many of the people we know have never heard a clear gospel presentation. They may have never... I mean, we, we live in a day, again, I said the, the number of evangelicals in America is a small minority. The people we know may have never set foot in a Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church in their lives. Or they may have slept through the service. Or they may have played on their phone. Or they may have drawn and doodled on the bulletin if they came. But they've never had someone who loves them. Set them down and say, let me show you this from the Bible. And because they've never heard, they have no opportunity to believe. And because they've had no opportunity to believe, they're not going to call. And since they don't call, they'll not be saved. And the web will snap and drop them into the judgment they have earned with their lives. The mission, significant, eternally significant. So we willingly endure hardships. We avoid unnecessary entanglements. And we focus on pleasing Jesus because of the importance of the mission he has given us. The Messiah and the mission are worth giving our lives. The Messiah and the mission are worth enduring hardships. The Messiah and the mission are worth avoiding entanglements.
the Messiah and the mission are worth focusing our lives on pleasing the one who has enlisted us. The Messiah and the mission deserve the very best of all of our lives. As disciples of Jesus, we are soldiers of Jesus. So let's choose we would be good ones. Let's stand and we'll dismiss in prayer.